Hello, I'm Eagle, Eagle Gardens, Eagle Gardens 1 on Instagram, and this is fucking talking shit with Eagle, episode 284. I have a super special guest with you tonight, uh, Indra John Davis. You guys know him from around the community for sure. You guys know him for his BHO patterns, and hopefully nowadays you're starting to know him for this amazing art that he's been producing. Uh, Mr. Indra. How you doing tonight? Tell us how you uh, how you're doing and where we can find you, good sir. Yeah, not bad for a sharecropper. I'm alive. It's been a long, locked up year, and uh, haven't really left the house because of all the various medical conditions that I picked up while serving in Vietnam. As one of the sleeping soldiers, I guess. And uh, they tried to kill me, but they haven't managed to just yet. But there's very few uh, Vietnam vets left compared to how many there were. And uh, we are losing about uh, 34,000 a year now this year, thanks to Uncle Trump, uh, VA hospital deaths that didn't need to happen. I mean, if any, if everyone listened to the Bob Woodward tapes, it was clear Trumpy knew all about it. He just didn't give a rat's behind. The only rat's behind he gives about is his. And I firmly believe he's definitely more closely related to a rat than a human being. I've never seen such callous disregard or other beings in my life. And it was pretty bad in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam. There was, you know, and India in the four sections, same. But there was a disregard for human life in Vietnam that was different from India. India, um, everybody had to live in their neighborhood. And the, the one thing about India was, uh, I visited a lot of different neighborhoods when I was there, a lot of different people and villages near and far. And the poorest of the people always had these beautiful, clean huts. Their clothes were always freshly washed. Everything was nice. Even if it was a mud hut, the floor had been wiped before I got there. And uh, it was almost like clay-like existence on the floor. And, you just got to, I mean, they were, they were okay about being poor. They were, they were happy. And it's a hard thing to attain on this side of the ocean, happiness. Uh, everybody equates it with different things. <clears throat> you know, he who dies with the most ties and all that which is a tremendous waste of time. There's only uh, one lesson going on here. And, uh, you can easily prove it out to yourself. There's only a few things you can take away from this existence. Not even one molecule of air can you take with you. But what you can take with you and what goes along is what did you do with your time here? And um, 
that's a very irritable treasure chest. Our condemnation on who you are and how you handle things. So I've been aware of that since I was quite young because I grew up on an army base and I used to see my dad get together with his fellow non-coms and get drunk and one of the all sorts of nonsense. Uh, one take me on a hunting trip so I could kill a deer, which I had no intention of doing, but they brought me along anyway. And when we finally found one, I fired the gun off in the air. Since my internet connection is unstable, so is my life. But um, it scared the deer off, and Dad hit me in the back of the head and said, "That's." What are you doing? I'm getting to teach you to be a man. And uh, wow, that was a mark on me that he decided I needed to learn how to kill things. But I resisted and never did uh, kill anything or shoot any living creature. It wasn't, wasn't something that I was interested in, spending the rest of my life regretting. Karma is kind of, you can tell about your karma. Uh, the paintbrush is the, whatever you regret and whatever you cherish. Those are the two ranges of colors that you can paint your life with and understand karma. Karma is actually one of the best things about this world because it gives you back in kind what you gave. So if you look at karma from a Zen point of view, um, you want to start giving. And it comes right back to you. It turns into a, a circle. And it's a good, good one to be in. And a circle of life like that. I've, I've felt it. I spent years and years in India running a children's recovery ward from heart surgery. And uh, I wouldn't trade that time. Although I, I never made a penny and never took a penny for anybody all the while I was there. And while I was doing that in the hospital, uh, we were by an ashram and the teacher uh, there was he wasn't somebody that I wanted to charge money for anything. And uh, <laughs> the other doctors that worked there in the mornings, we would go and sit on the porch and he would come out and we would be the first ones to see him. There was about 40 of us that sat on the porch. We worked at the hospital. And, uh, he would come out, bend over and stick his feet underneath my crossed legs and we were there was five rows across and uh, however many back it took to fill it up to 40 guys and I sat on the front left corner and he'd come out in the morning and bend over and talk to me and he was telling me stories from the uh, Ramayana and uh, he would give me that kind of information. He would also uh, tell me certain 
slokas or stories from the Ramayana or from the uh, Sunni Guru Granth Sahib and also uh, from Krishna's uh, in the Mahabharata. And he would tell me these stories every morning and I was simply hypnotized at the time it was going on. It was kind of an energy that I felt like encompassed me with him. And when he told me the story, it was almost like I could see in my mind the vision of the movie version of the story that he was telling, like it was being projected into my head. And he did that for a couple of years. Well, I was getting ready to work at the hospital, and then he invited me to go and work at the hospital in the children's room. And uh, after I'd been there doing that for a, a couple of years, he, uh, there was two hospitals there, a small one and a big one. And the big one was where the heart surgery took place. And, uh, the small hospital director used to sit right on my side with his knee. I was against the wall and he was the next guy over from me and everybody was packed in quite close as you can imagine because people wanted his darshan they wanted to see Swami close to him and be noticed by him and uh, okay, one one morning uh, he had gone off to Whitefield and so we were having uh, an afterwards uh, tea and breakfast at the hospital and uh, he asked me, um, John, can I ask you a personal question? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, every morning uh, for the past two years, Swami bends over and he's saying something to you. Can you tell us what he's saying? And of course I was, flabbergasted. I was like, what do you mean? You're sitting so close to me that um, if you were any closer, you'd be on the other side. And I said, don't you hear? You're sitting, you know, your head is a foot away from mine. And he said, no, we all discussed it. Everybody leans and tries to hear what's going on, but all we ever hear is buzz, 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 and we don't really hear what someone's saying to you at all. And uh, I was pretty, what? <laughs> Are you kidding? And, no, no, no. He said, we, we would love to hear what he's saying to you. So, of course, I told him, you know, he's been telling me Ramayana and Mahabharata and just different stories, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, which somehow uh, I still can remember each and every one of them like they were etched in my uh, memory and um, it was I guess uh, sometime after that and I started having dreams while I was there at the ashram and he would come in the dream and uh, tell me and relate things to me and uh, my family finally decided to come because I wasn't going to be coming back anytime soon. I told uh, 
man at the time, hey, can I, it's a special time. I, I can't really leave here. Swami said that he'll get you to come here. So then three days later, she called me on an emergency. And I said, it was Christmas, two days after Christmas. I said, what's the matter? She said, the house burned down. <laughs> so I started laughing. And she said, what's so funny? And I said, Swami just told me that uh, he would get you to come. And so um, they packed up and came to India. And when we got into the interview room. With Swami, uh, I looked at him. And he was looking at Johnny and Davin, the kids, and, and looking at uh, Annie. And she didn't know what to say. And he looked at me and I said, Hey, Swami, uh, our house burned down in the USA. And he looked at Annie and then he looked back at me, got kind of a mischievous grin on his face, looked at Annie again, and then he leaned over and said to me, only way she would come. <laughs> so he said, obviously he had burned the house down, and uh, that was a big relief to her because she was feeling kind of guilty about that. But uh, yeah, that was just uh, the beginning of some of the really crazy times we had in India. Um, I I did a lot of things at that point in time. Which I don't know if I would have done in another time, but also I wouldn't trade the experiences for anything. Um, I I went to Gangotri, which is uh, the top of the Ganga River, the mouth of the Ganga, what Gangotri means, and there's a temple there. And uh, you have to walk up to it. It's quite a walk from the village itself, something like 40 kilometers. And you have to cross a couple of calf deep streams of the Ganga that are quite cold because it's all coming up from underneath of the glacier. But uh, I got to the temple and it was pretty cold and it was snowing. and. Uh, I had a good down jacket, uh, you know, a pair of hiking boots, so forth. So I was okay. At least I, I thought that that was going to be okay. And uh, we got to the temple, and uh, I ran across these uh, sadhus, these these guys that were in their sixties and seventies, because in India. Yeah. When you get to be a certain age, you, you stop what you're doing, your normal routine, and you surrender it all, and you go take a spiritual journey. And uh, a lot of times that's the last journey, so you know, don't survive it. But on the other hand, a lot of them do. And so I, I ran into these guys, and, uh, there were six of them. And, they told me that they're getting ready to go to the next temple over. And I knew that there's three altogether because there's three sacred rivers, the Amanan, the Saraswati, and the Ganga. And so I said, well, OK, because I was off for the summer. And uh, 
I didn't. I was kind of looking for an adventure, but not not of the magnitude that it turned out to be. So they said we're going to walk over to the next river, and he said, "You just come with us. You won't need to get anything. Just just come as you are." And uh, you look warm enough. So, so we started it out. And about three weeks into it, I asked the group leader, hey, exactly how much further is temple number two? He said, yeah, it's going to maybe be another two months. <laughs> and then he said, and by the way, um, we don't talk on this journey because it's an inward journey as much as an outward journey. So let us let this be our last conversation until we arrive at temple number three. I was like, okay. Because they hadn't dawned on me yet that there was another two and a half months after temple number two to get to temple number three. I guess it was some kind of shock that I was put myself into because walking and walking at uh, 10 to 12,000 feet in the Himalayas tends to take up all your effort because you're breathing and you're breathing twice as much and, uh, you're really working your body there's a lot of uphill and a lot of downhill we weren't didn't even carry any food and I was wondering what we were going to do about that First night, I guess we walked about 30 kilometers. Then we came into this little village in the middle of nowhere, really small, like six huts, some nice patties out on the side. And they welcomed us. We stayed the night. They stuffed us with rice and these little red chili sauce that was so hot that it made your body warm because it was just you know, the hottest thing I've ever had in my mouth was that cherry sauce. But I slept like a stone that night. Next day we got up when we walked. They gave us a big package of rice and uh, chapatis to go with us to eat along the way. And some fruit they gave us. A, you know, at 11,000 feet in the Himalayas, you still got bananas and mangoes. And you still have jungle happening there because of the proximity to the equator. And so, um, yeah, we walked and walked. And, uh, a lot of stuff happened. Uh, I remember the third or fourth night, we were up pretty high and it was cold. And, took quite a while to gather up enough sticks for a small fire. And, uh, I had a, a sleeping bag, but it was, you know, it wasn't meant. It was one of those kind you could fold up and put in a pouch. And, uh, so we were, and they had some blankets and made out of horsehair or something really, really coarse blankets. We went to sleep and in the morning. Uh, I thought the guy that was sleeping next to me was rubbing my leg with his leg, and I was, I 
woke up and I looked and a ginormous rock python had taken up the space between us and was rubbing against him and rubbing against me to keep warm. And I saw it <laughs> and uh, it looked at me and I jumped up, made a 15 foot dash. And then I yelled for my friends as I was dashing to wake up. And they saw it too. And they're all standing off to the side. And the snake crawls away and he looks at us like, What's up? It was comfy, warm. What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> and, uh, that was, I, at that point in time, I wondered, gee, how often was he going to run? 15 foot rock pythons cruising around up here. I didn't know they were even living up at this point in time at this high, but apparently they were. Uh, on that very same day, uh, we came to up there, you run into pads that will run along the edge of a cliff down from the top of the cliff, down maybe 60, 70 feet. It'll be like a sidewalk carved around the edge of the mountain. So we, it was a one person at a time clearance. And we were walking along. And I think I was uh, the last guy in line. I usually liked to uh, be last because I didn't feel hurried that way. So they stopped up in the front and I took a look. And, We'd come around the corner and on a rock off of the path that had splintered up from the cliff and was sitting there with a, a huge female tiger. And, and she was cleaning her paw and looking at us. And right about that time, I heard this little bell tinkling. At first, I thought, wow, I wonder if that's the bell you hear before you die. <laughs> and um, I heard it again, and I looked down below us, and on the path going below the rock she was on was about a dozen little Himalayan goats, and the lead goat had a uh, little belt tied on, and uh, she jumped down and grabbed the goat behind him and took off across this gravel steep as hell slope with that goat screaming in her mouth. And we started walking again. I had a lot of energy at that point in time. I could have walked another 25 miles that day because uh, that tiger was only about 15 feet away. And um, I mean, I, it was one of those deals like, I, you know, if they start running your way, what do you do? Well, I'm going to be the fastest guy on that cliff. It was just, you know, a very shaky circumstance to realize that uh, everywhere we were going was going to have the possibility of a tiger or a python or one of these miniature rhinos that they have there to steam engines. And lots and lots of monkeys and uh, a couple of Himalayan black cobras, which were crazy. It was like the snake was so energetic and live. It was like a whip, a bull whip, looking around on the ground. 
was sliding around on a rock in front of us, and almost uh, like a dancer sliding with his tap shoes back and forth. And beautiful, iridescent black creature with a huge red dot on it. It was moving so fast that there would have been surely nothing it could have done if it would have decided to attack us. But uh, it did this dance, and then it got down off the rock and went away. And, uh, I was happy to see that happen. It's a go. But uh, a lot of cobras in India, and uh, a lot of different circumstances and understanding about cobras that worshipped in India. And, uh, if you go to, uh, there's some places that you can go to in India where there's temples that are probably 10 or 11,000 years old. They're, they're incredibly ancient. And uh, it's not a well-known thing. <laughs> I mean, we wanted to go to the north to a temple where the monks kept a bunch of uh, palm leaves and those palm leaves uh, were written on 6,000 years ago by a sage called Valmari and he wrote down it's a tremendous warehouse full of these palm leaves you have to see it to believe it it's like a football field warehouse and shelves that go up 40 feet, ladders everywhere. And, uh, what he did, this guy, was he wrote down the name, address, where you were going to be born, where you were going to die, what you did in your life, um, and other information about each person born in the Kali Yuga. And uh, I, I found out about these. Uh, there's two sets of these leaves in India. There's that one, and there's the Book of Nibu, another system where that similar thing happened at a different age. But anyway, I found myself on a trip to go to this warehouse to find out if my name was there. I mean, once you find out it exists, you got to see, right? So um, I went there, and on the way there, came across this temple uh, called uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it uh, I remember sometimes the uh, Indian names of course are a little more taxing on your memory but uh, there was this uh, cave and in that cave in the back of the cave was a known lingam that had been discovered back there in like 1400. And uh, the lingam wasn't placed there by anybody. Uh, the name of that cave was Tel Bhuvaneshwar. And so um, that no one placed that lingam in that cave. They discovered it. And when they took a good look at it, it was coming right out of the bedrock. And it's way back about 900 meters in the back of the cave and down 80 meters down the steep entrance way. And I wanted to, uh, they said 
the, the walls have all this shadow that looks like all this. And as you get down to the 80-foot bottom of the cave, there's a rock that overhangs the entrance. It's exactly like a cobra with nine heads, Sheshnag. And it has a skeleton runs up to the head, and then it runs up on the floor of the cave, all the way into the back where the lingam's at. Don't ask me how all that got there. I just, it was my karma to find out that it was there. I see it. And so I found myself in this cave and I asked the uh, keeper, the local family, if I could uh, spend the night in there. And they said, well, it gets pretty dark because we don't run the generator at night. The generator's too old and fragile. And no amount of convincing that would make them leave the generator. That was just not going to happen. But they decided that if I really wanted to spend the night in there, uh, gratuity, which I gave them, um, they could allow that. And they said to stay away from the door. The door of the, the cave was iron bars with a lock on it. They said you won't be able to get out till morning. And uh, you might hear the tiger visits this cave a lot. He makes some pretty blood curdling sounds if he smells people down in there. So I said, okay. So we went down in there and we got back around the lingo. And uh, pretty strange. Uh, I had a backpack with cashews and nuts and raisins and stuff. That evening, there had, before they let us in to spend the night, there had been a service because it's kind of a mini church because the lingam's there. And this lingam's considered very holy. And uh, so the service was over. And they left. And as part of the service, they placed all these nuts and fruits and candies on the lingam. So pretty soon they said, okay, well, we'll see you in the morning. And I said, well, what about all this stuff? They said, don't worry, we'll be taken care of. They went out, closed the gate. About an hour later, uh, lights flickered. And around, we had, at that point in time, it was in the late 80s. I mean, we had some of the first little LED flashlights, minuscule light, I mean, put out a six inch beam that was six inches long too. But, so anyway, me and the two other guys that are in there came with me. Uh, wanted to spend the evening in there as well. So we're laying down. There's just enough room for the three of us in a triangle to lay around the lingam. And so we had a look, one candle that we lit, and we had that, and we talked and talked. And then finally, I said, well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty sleepy. I'm trash. Everybody was in agreement with me. So we blew out the candle, and I was, I thought I had pretty much gone sound to sleep. And I felt something tickling my toes. And I thought, what the hell? And so I got out my little one 
LED light on my keychain and flipped it on. And there at the bottom where I was laying, leaning over my feet, looking at me, was a, what looked like about a three pound rat. And uh, it was white and it had blue eyes, huge blue eyes. And I was laying there and kind of in, transfixed. I wasn't sure what was going on. Was I hallucinating? And so the rat goes over to the lingam and helps itself to all the goodies that are on the tray. Scoops them up, grabs a bunch in his mouth, runs back out into the other chamber, and then runs back and gets more. So I, I shine the light out. In the other chamber, there's like 500 big brown rats out there waiting for him. And he's distributing the stuff off the lingam. And uh, at this point in time, I was thinking, wow, what a horrible way to die in the back of a cave, eaten alive by rats. And then I got calm for some reason. It just calmed down immediately. And as soon as I had that thought, it went away. Uh, here came the rat back in, and I opened up my backpack and took all the nuts and raisins and everything out. Spread them all over the lingam again, and took all those. And long story short, he took all the stuff we put on the lingam back out and gave it amongst the other rats. And, uh, I was still just sitting there, and he came back and he put his paws over my was staring at me and my friend Lewis was laying next to us he's like hey don't scare him off John I got a one lux video camera here and I want to record it and my toes listen I'm not trying to bring any stress into his life I'm, I'm giving him treats He's like, yeah, I know, and I just want to film it. I'm like, go right ahead. And then uh, the rat comes alongside my leg. I'm laying on my left side. Comes alongside my leg, crawls up between my tummy and my lap, and lays on his back. And so I start rubbing his tummy. Not because I was afraid, but because I something I felt very calm. I was rubbing his tummy for a little while. Lewis is like, keep him his tummy, keep him his tummy. So I haven't got my camera on, warmed up yet. So then the rat gets up, it walks back down the bottom of my feet, turns around, takes a look, and then he jumps off into the other room. So I sit up immediately and I get up and I walk out. All the rats are following him and he's making out of this, it's like a, a cave full of different huge rocks. The rats all follow him. And at the next part of the room, there's a wall there. And that wall has got a constant flow of water coming from the uh, ganga, coming percolating through the ground. And the, the wall's carved so it looks like dreadlocks. And the, the local priest says that those are dreadlocks of Shiva, who lets the ganga hit him in the head first before it dissipates on earth, otherwise it would destroy the earthly plane. 
And so there's a, like a hundred gallon container there and it's just full of this delicious water, which we drank and drank and drank. You can imagine, filled up every container we had, took out with us when we left. But anyway, the rest all go by that. Everybody takes a drink. They turn right at the edge of it and go around it. And I'm about maybe six, seven feet behind them. My little teeny tiny camping light. And I follow them up to where they go around the corner and I turn right and it just goes less than two feet and it's just a solid rock wall. There's rocks everywhere. There's no place they could have gone because there was no little hole that rats the size of cats could go in there. Especially as I can see. I mean, I, I followed them right out. And, uh, anyway, we left there and, uh, the next day and we had all this Shiva water with us. And, uh, we wanted to go to the next uh, temple, of course, because at this point in time, it was a pretty big adventure. So my, I'm just blabbing and blabbing. Is any questions come up or? We're loving it so far. We, oh God, no! I, I love these episodes, Andrea. We all do. Um, life experience like that is uh, very hard to come by, you know. And you're very right, you know. We base society on material bullshit anymore, and uh, it's it's nice to get a glimpse of a a better place, a better time. So. Uh, I don't want to interrupt. I'm trying not to interrupt. I I, uh, I love audible books and, you know, even better, a life story from somebody I have, you know, tons of respect for. And then, you know, in it, a lesson that we all should be learning. Uh, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're all ears, my friend, uh, loving this. And, you know, if there's a question, I'll take note of it. And when the appropriate time comes, uh, I'll ask it, but uh, please continue on with the story. It's it's been amazing so far, and if, pardon me if you know if if you want me to jump in, I'll jump in. But it's an amazing story. It's almost rude to jump in, and you know, when you're narrating such a, a beautiful crafted story. I just didn't want you uh, want to put everybody to sleep. Oh no, we're loving this. Yeah, we're so we're absolutely it. loving it. India you know, is I, a uh, it's an amazing place. You, you can I've met people there who were in the where the, my teacher was a very powerful teacher and uh, a, a really good friend of mine, a concert pianist traveled from New York. He had recently been Paris and then New York. And he wanted to come see Swami. And so I told him, well, I'm going to be there. You can stay with us. So he came and he showed up. And I mean, he had really nice clothes and nice jewels. 
he's a concert pianist, you know. I mean, he had an assistant with him. And, uh, on the third or fourth day, uh, we came in the, in the morning to have darshan, which is where you, everybody wakes up in the morning, goes to church, sings some bhajans, which are nothing more than psalms and stuff like that in, in Hindi and in Sanskrit. They're differently based. You know, uh, yoga and chanting, all of that stuff is inextricably woven together. Uh, a long, long time ago, uh, the yogis discovered that if they breathed a lot one way or another, that it would change their consciousness. If they could help. themselves or trying to figure out how to improve on that what they could do to channel more energy and so uh, they decided that the breathing must be very rhythmic in order to achieve the results and uh, they were trying to well not many watches around in those days so they decided, how can we time the breathing? And it was suggested to use a word, say that certain word a certain way, and it would account for a certain amount of time. And then it turns out that when they took this breath in and used that inward breath out with their voice, forcing it past their vocal cords, they discovered chanting, because some chants, uh, if you look at them carefully, are designed around the breath, and so they, these uh, chants were born, you know, Om Namah Shivaya, and thousands and thousands of different chants were born because they discovered that they could have this powerful effect. Then they thought, well, what happens if I sit cross-legged hold my two fingers together and do that same breathing and chant discovered mudras. And uh, there's different mudras, which are completing different circuits in your in your hand when you hold them together. You can, the, the finger surface, the nail, or these are different connections that you make in your electric body. And if you breathe a certain way and chant certain sounds to cause this change to happen in your body, it'll start opening up doorways and you'll start seeing. And one of my big things on my art is about vision and about seeing yourself because until you see how yourself clearly, you don't see anybody else clearly either. It makes for a lot of misunderstandings. There was time in the golden age where everyone could see themselves the last time the golden age was around. And so there were never any arguments because everybody was in harmony. And, uh, I even heard the story, uh, Swami told me that uh, 
the day that the golden age was over and it was downgrading to the next age, the last time during that yuga, uh, it was known that it was the beginning of the downgrade because somewhere in the kingdom there was heard a husband and wife arguing. And that was the first sign that the golden age had begun to degrade, that there could be an argument amongst anyone, much less the husband and wife who should be in perfect harmony with each other. And so um, now that Kali Yuga, we were just getting over it. It's at the end of it. Even at the end of it, even these yugas takes a long time. Because what a yuga is is one breath of God. And uh, there's those who number that as 356,000 years of breath. That's the age of the yuga. More or less, I mean, more. I'm not going to be the exact thing. It's not like you're sitting there with a calculator waiting to hear that information either, is it? And so a timeless place, the space between the breath coming in is providing all kinds of nourishment now because the Kali, the age of Kali, the last breath was a top body breath. And as the last bits of it went out, the last of the bad things had to happen. A lot of energies in the last four years have brought us much closer to understanding how fragile everything is and how somebody with bad intentions could change the balance of the whole thing just to appease themselves like like every would-be dictator has done throughout the ages. They peddle fear and uncertainty and they try to divide everybody. Look, everybody's the same. You know, your blood's interchangeable with Chinese, Vietnamese, Japanese, African. The only difference is we have this shading going on the outside that's the only difference and yet we make the biggest fucking deal out of that possible you know it's the only real difference amongst us is the shading and, and who decided the dark was bad and light was good right i don't know how that happened but um, Seems to be the way things are. I was brought up on every basis. Even I was brought up in Okinawa, Japan, on every base. Definitely with a minority player there. Had to go to Japanese school to Okinawa for the Japanese kids. It was right after World War II, so they couldn't wait to kick my ass when nobody was looking for school. Was a couple, but it was something that had to go through at the time. It's, it served me since I mean, the uh, teacher watched that happen to me for three years. And I didn't complain. He called me in one morning and said, I'm going to teach you how to defend yourself now. So I said, I don't want you to hit any of the kids because you're my figure. You could hurt them. So he taught me how to defend myself, you know, not to punch somebody or uh, 
put a lock on somebody, but how does the bank of doing it to me? And that was really all I cared about at the time anyway. I had no desire to kind of bring any pain in the world. I was the oldest of 11 kids, and my father and mother were drunks. Dad was a warning, but he was drunk. It used to be tolerated back then. And, uh, Mom, she was a drunk because Dad was. So that was that was them sticking together, solidarity. They both got stinking drunk every night. And there was a bunch of us. There was eleven of us. And, uh, I was a chief cook and bottle washer. I grew up having to do everything for my brothers and sisters. And, uh, it was okay. It wasn't, I mean, in retrospect, uh, it was me learning to become a father. And it served me well. I mean, I took care of the children's ward from the heart surgery. In India, there's a uh, couple of genetic detours. A lot of kids are born with a problem in the left atrium valve. It doesn't seat well, so they get this surgery, and they generally split the rib cage on the left side and go in and pull that out and replace it, put the rib cage back down. Well, there's a lot of side effects. You know, some kids can't walk for a long time after that. They're partially paralyzed, and they come out of there and are put on the ventilator right away. And uh, that's how they maintain breathing. And talking them off of the ventilator is uh, quite the job because they don't want to let go of the ventilator. I remember these are little uh, kids in South India, villagers, almost aboriginals. And the ventilator is keeping them breathing. And because they had this heart problem, they thought it was all connected. After the surgery, it feels so much better that it must have something to do with the fact that this ventilator is making them breathe better. So it was up to me to talk them out of that. And so I would manipulate them and uh, manipulate the soft tissue, the chest, and the abdomen. They'd be able to take a good breath. And uh, when I wanted to really get them off of it, and I was sure they could breathe, I'd come sit by their bedside one morning, and I'd say, how about today's the day we take that off? And they, of course, would go, oh, no, no, we can't take it off. And I already had reached down and turned it off, so it wasn't going. But, you know, their breathing was so good, they, they couldn't tell that. And so I would reach down and grab the hose off the ventilator motor and hold it up so they could see it and they'd realize that they were breathing on their own. So uh, that's just what you had to do to get the little buggers to get a shot because, you know, look, they, their whole life they felt like shit and now someone brought them to the hospital and uh, put them in surgery and they got big scars on their chest and staples and all the rest of it, you know, I mean, it's not exactly the kind of thing a young kid from the village is going to think to himself, well, yeah, that was all good.
except that they do know they breathe better and they feel better. So that's that's actually where I got nicknamed Indra. Um, the little kids mostly spoke Malayalam, which is a, a very tough uh, offshoot of an ancient language in South India that almost sounds like babbling. It's so fast and uh, it's very primitive, but they couldn't say my name because the accent, so they couldn't say Don Davis or Dr. Davis. So I came in one morning and the uh, nurses in the hospital had made up a name tag for me that said Dr. Indra. They stuck it on me. Kids were happy about that. Every morning I would come in somewhere between 30 and 60 kids in the ward. And they would all chant my name Dr. Indra, Dr. Indra. A lot of people visited me in India while I was there, and so that nickname just got kind of stuck with me. And then when I hosted uh, BHO in 1998 on the web, uh, you can look on Eurowid and find the post, actually. I think it's uh, March 99 is when they posted it, but actually I... I sent it to them before that, but they always take a while before they post these things. But uh, I posted BHO to share it with the world because I thought, well, I discovered it actually in Vietnam while I was there. And um, I came back and I'd been making uh, a living with it. And I was known as the oil candy man around the Bay Area for a long time. I was the only guy who just red oil. Everybody else had this black shit that they were selling. But I had this very nice red stuff. My mine stuff was better than the Hare Krishnas. The Hare Krishnas used to smuggle it uh, into uh, the airport in San Francisco in typewriter cases. And, uh, but that was very harsh though because it was derived with kerosene, mine had been, I'd been using butane at that early phase of the game. So, yeah, I, I posted it online because I wanted to share it and so that everybody could feel the same kind of euphoric high from PHO that I was getting. So I posted it. It was a it took off uh, as next year it took off more and the year after that it went pretty much everywhere the first night i posted it it was on a uh, bulletin board that dealt with cactus extractions they dealt mostly with uh, peyote and san pedro and various uh, cacti that are known to produce mescaline in their systems and they were all talking about um, how much of pain it was to get rid of all the thorns and then shave off the outer eighth inch and then dry it and then powderize it before you could even start to extract it. And I said to them, um, wow, uh, why don't you just throw it in a pipe? 
feed butane gas in at the top and collect the raw oil right out of the bottom. And in those days, it was actually a bulletin board more than it was the internet. It was, it was a, it went every, a lot of places, but it was still nonetheless a bulletin board. And uh, everything got quiet. In those days, the chat on the side of the bulletin board went a thousand miles an hour because it'd be 2,000 people online who were wanting to chat about whatever. And uh, it just froze, it got quiet. And nobody said anything for about three or four minutes. Then this one guy came on and he said, uh, excuse me, sir. He goes, can you do anything else with it? And I said, well, yeah, you don't want to put the mescaline you know, the peyote in it. Stop it from marijuana and you get this beautiful red honey oil. Well, then the chat froze solid. It was just sitting there for like, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. And I was getting ready to reboot my computer because I thought, it's frozen, right? Then all of a sudden, the chat started going two million miles a second. I mean, you could, it was a blur. And this one guy sent me a DM and said, do you realize what this means? And I said, yeah, I realize what it means. That's why I'm posting it here. I'm posting it to share it with everybody. And so uh, I want the world to feel the same euphoria that I've felt. I know it's here for us. And, uh, I know that God gave it to me and put it in my mind because he knew that uh, I had a big mouth and there would be no way I could keep my mouth shut and that I'd share it. So I did. And uh, it was pretty crazy. Uh, in 1998, I wrote a patent, uh, which was approved right away and then uh, in 2007 I rewrote it and won approval again and uh, I just rewrote it recently uh, and it will win a third time approval and by the way in case anybody's listening uh, the patent is for sale and in addition to that we have a factory in the heart of Kansas that can process 2,000 500 to 3,500 pounds daily uh, CBD for CBD oil. Got a couple hundred acres around the factory, 28,000 gallon gas field, and 2,500 pound extractor. DHO extractor. Built in the factory, been there successfully. Our Kansas just said okay to CBD. And I'm sure that very soon, uh, now that the climate's going to change on all this with the new incoming administration, um, Kansas will say, because Kansas needs in industries there. They, they have nothing there. You know, some of the people in Kansas are so poor that when they want a grilled cheese sandwich, they have to ask the mice if they can get it out of the mousetraps they'll pay them back later. So there's not shit going on there. And so uh, soon you'll be able to extract THC there. It's in the middle of the country. You can run it twice a day so that you can get, you know, 5,000 pounds. And uh, we have a bid from a 
company on the East Coast that could upgrade the whole thing so they could run 30,000 pounds a day. And they went just short of a million dollars to do that. And uh, that would be the, be the biggest, fastest processor in the country because uh, all these CO2 guys, I mean, uh, <sighs> CO2, you, you make your extraction, then you get a bucket of tar, and then you gotta use an alcohol extractor to get the good stuff out of the tar. And all the while, you could have had eight more runs on our system. You know, it just, the run itself just takes an hour. The, the recovery uh, takes an additional hour. On our big system, recovery takes three hours. But if the system was upgraded, you can run it every 25 minutes. Every time you load it, you can run it. And along with the patent comes my uh, 2009 patent on continuous flow extractor. So uh, I'm getting old, gang. I'm 75. And I'd like to retire to my artistic endeavors and uh, not have to worry about. Seems like the perfect time. I feel that way. Feel it seemed like, like a perfect time. There's a lot of things that uh, I'm going to license out to people yet uh, that nobody really knows. I know how to separate uh, all the trichromes from a pound in uh, 10 seconds flat with no water. Nobody knows how to do it, but I do. And, uh, a bunch of other things to do with extraction and understanding uh, the best way to go. How to uh, look? I, I'm getting ready to take patent on what we call a terpene extractor that you set in your greenhouse and you turn it on, and it reduces the aroma in your greenhouse 99% because it's sucking all the airborne terpenes that are flying around into this machine which is condensing it and spits it out in bottles at the end of the day and uh, a few other uh, interesting takes on things that are differently than the people have been doing it I mean a lot of these people have been at it for you know, five, six, seven years. And, uh, but I've been at it, uh, well, I started growing 57 years ago. And uh, in 1970, I started doing extensive extractions with butane after I got back from Vietnam. And uh, I, I can remember in 1971 making a, an extraction and having being so tired uh, from doing it, and I wanted to go home and lay down, so I left it in a jar with the lid on loose and I went home for the night. In the morning, I came back and I saw the first THCA crystals in the bottom of the jar. Uh, they were about two inches deep. And uh, I pulled a few out and smoked it, and wow, you know, so I knew about those THCA crystals. So, so long ago. And I also saw 
a couple of phenomena, you know. When you do that and you leave some gas left in the oil, put it in the jar, let it ventilate. A lot of people will take that stuff at the top of the jar and they say, hey, this is turp sauce. But uh, those guys kind of operate from left field on that one. You know, as the gas matriculates out of the oil, it's going up and it wants to evaporate and get out of that oil. It doesn't really need so while that's happening, the very lightest fractions of the oil go up with it. And they stay on top because the rest of the oil is denser just below them. And down in the bottom, it's so dense that it's giving birth to THCA crystals. And that very light stuff on the top is what they're calling turp sauce, which is just really the very lightest fractions of the oil. Undoubtedly, there's terpenes in it too. But it's not terpenes, like a lot of people claim. It's never going to be claiming it's not going to make it so. It just isn't so. That's just all there is to it. And, uh, I've seen. So, Indra, I have a quick question. Is it. Okay. As PHO sits out and it sugars up, is it turning to THCA like that when it's uh, not sealed up? Well, well, the thing about doing it with the butane is uh, it's pretty much nearly a cryogenic extraction. And so it's very selective. And uh, it usually in our system anyway, we leave all the uh, waxes and lipids behind in the top chamber because we use the shower method. We don't use the soap method. And so... Um, you know, it, it, it's just a, a, a different kind of a scenario. It produces a different result. But one you'll be extremely happy with because all of our extracts are very potent. We, we have a top chamber when it's empty. There's gas not in it anymore. In all of the rest of the systems, all of them, when you open it up, you smell a powerful smell of terpenes. Yeah, to build the room up. Our system has a vacuum pump connected to the top chamber. And when the extraction's over, you close the, the valve off between the top and the bottom, and that vacuum pump starts pulling off all the uh, airborne terpenes that are in that chamber, takes it through Scientific 710 black hole where it uh, comes out as a liquid and drips down below so that you can collect it. And when you open up the lid on uh, our unit after an extraction, when it's a full extraction that you're in the, the vacuum chamber, well, you don't really smell anything. It, it, it smells, if you take a handful of it and smell it, it smells like chicken feed. So it, we collect all those terpenes in that thing and we pour it back into extraction itself. So not only are you getting a lot of the terpenes, you're getting all of the terpenes that were present in your extraction. And none of these other systems do that or anything even like it. I, I'd be glad to uh, go quality head-to-head -head with one of our machines with any other system that is out there. And, uh, 
our system was originally designed and made for flavors and fragrances. We designed it and worked in the flavor and fragrance field for 20 years with the biggest perfume and flavor countries and companies in the world. And they loved it. They, they, they even called our extractions for Roberto, they called them Buta flower. And uh, we were well known for uh, making these kinds of extractions. We extracted oil from uh, Otto Rose. They flew from Romania in a container, 40 foot container, frozen, fresh Otto Rose. And we would get it for a certain amount. We had a chamber which we could pour a quart of liquid nitrogen in, and then a press would crunch everything down. And because, you know, once the nitrogen, it was like glass and it would crunch all the way down to, uh, it was a 150 gallon container and it would crunch down to two inches in the bottom. That way we could load the uh, extractor up with quite a bit of frozen material to extract it. And uh, we used to extract all kinds of exotic stuff. We do over 14,000 extractions there over all those years. I mean, I learned a lot about terpenes. First time we opened up the chamber after a big rose extraction, there was 20 gallons of water in it, which was actually rose water. It was this water with these tiny knots in it. And it was also very uh, powerful with terpenes. And uh, the rose guys always wanted that back too. They wanted that rose water. That water was... The roses and the oil are together in the plant. Everybody has to realize that, I hope. And when you extract it, there's going to be some water that comes out of it because it's fresh flowers. And that water that comes out has got little dots of rose oil in it that stay suspended in the water because it's the plant water. And the plant water is doesn't mind uh, having the suspension of these little dots of oil in almost like a natural emulsification. That's why a lot of these guys are coming up with this new emulsification stuff. It's not really new micro emulsification, old, old news, but that's okay. Um, so we started uh, collecting these emulsions, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, back in 1998 at the factory. And uh, that factory is uh, quite a spot. Uh, 14,000 extractors went through there. Everything sometimes. Uh, Swanson once hired us to take all the oil and fat out of fried chicken. They shipped us a big load of fried chicken and we stuck it in the chamber and extracted it. And afterwards, they, they liked it. They were like, well, this is you know, nearly fat free. And uh, we talked about a deal with them, and we spent quite a bit of time there. It became apparent to us after a while what they were asking for was far beyond us because they wanted to process a couple hundred thousand chickens a day. They, they wanted us to come up with a system that could take that on. And it was earlier in our incarnation, and I thought that was 
much for us. Uh, and plus that, you know, I didn't want to be working with the chickens. That was the last thing I was interested in doing, especially with perfume companies. But um, our system was so solid that we could put in garlic one day, uh, chickens the next day, uh, pot the next day, and roses the next day, and no cross-contamination because uh, we spent plenty of time figuring how to clean the gas between the extractions before we put it back in the chamber. And uh, we spent a lot of time doing a lot of things that none of the jokers were presenting themselves and by the way, all these guys who are coming up with these marijuana patents, guess what? They don't fly in federal court. Marijuana is still illegal until it becomes illegal. It will remain so. We'll be able to file patent infringement on anybody who's got a similar process. The only patent I know of this rock salad is ours, and that's because we wrote it uh, not for marijuana. We wrote it for all oils from all plant materials in the world. And, uh, we never once mentioned marijuana in it. We just talked about oils. And so uh, we had a couple of people, uh, big companies, uh, try to squish us back in the beginning, but it didn't work because... Uh, the patent was very clever and voided all those things. I was very careful as I wrote it both times. Second time, and now the third time I've written it, I've addressed everything as well. And uh, I think, yeah, it'll be it'll be great to sell it because uh, I would just like to take five build myself a giant expensive computer wall immerse myself in animation and uh, of the kind that I like I think that it pushes my button anyway and uh, I like that kind of stuff Anthro Sensimilia would like to know why'd you choose Kansas? All the places you could have, hey, you know, put up. Arthur Simpson Amelia wants to know why Kansas. Out of all the places you could have set up shop with less risk, with, you know, cannabis. Oh. You know, yeah, uh, I get that question a lot. It's simple. We were we were in Switzerland when we decided to come to the states and uh, build the factory, and my Swiss partner Hans had these. 2,000 acres of land in the middle of Kansas. And believe you me, it was not my idea to go to Kansas, but he had this property and it was right there. And uh, we didn't need a license or a permit to exist. We didn't need a note from mom or anything. We could just go and build it. So that's what we did. So, it took us about a year and a half. We built it from the ground up, Johnny and I. We built every bit of it. We wired it. We piped it, plumbed it, um, all of it. And, uh, and then a couple of occasions, I had to write uh, patents to get things that I wanted to work, work the control system. 
because back in that time in the late 90s, uh, trying to find a sensor that fit inside of a gas tank that measured the gas amount at a certain level was not to be found. I mean, they would have temperature gauges to put on the outside and so forth and so on, but I didn't feel like that was reliable enough of a sensor um, to tell me when it had enough gas. And so I developed a, a tuning fork that uh, had one of the very first neomidium magnets on the base of it, and it could screw into the wall of the recessed into the wall of the big extraction chamber. And when the gas got to the place where the tuning fork was, it couldn't vibrate at 440 anymore. It would slow down to about 370. And that would be enough to change the field and the neomidium magnet and it would shut the gas flow off. But a lot of problems like that we had to overcome because back then when you talk about, hey, I'm going to put 3,000 gallons of butane in a tank with all this stuff, people were like, uh huh. When we built it the first day, after it was all tested by DOT and had been pressure tested, it took us a year and a half to get to that point. Uh, in Kansas, when it's raining, the farmers don't have anything to do because you can't get into a muddy field in Kansas with a tractor. It's just You're going to leave it right where you drove them to. And so when it's raining, they're all the farmers are busy looking for something to do. Uh, we got to know this because in the first year while we were building the extractor, it was we were built it in a 40-foot high frame. And uh, on rainy days, the farmers would wander in and go, hey, what is that? And, uh, I wouldn't really tell them. I'd just say, yeah, it's a piece of equipment I'm building for my factory. And I wouldn't say much else and Danny the guy that was building it he got tired of them asking him so he put a sign on it that said uh, guess what this is win $100 guesses $250 so that slowed down that one for a while and then uh, when we were about 80% done with it one afternoon a the local uh, Baptist minister walked in you know he had the little collar on and all that he was standing there next to me looking at it and uh, he said uh, what is that son and i said yeah that's a piece of equipment i'm building for my factory father he said uh-huh uh yeah. what does it do he says, well it's just processing for me in that factory i told you about they let me build it and, uh, he's quiet for a few more minutes and then he looks at me and he says, well, you know, it kind of looks like something illegal. And I sit there for a minute and I looked at him and I said, well, you know what, Father? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so he got his ass out of there and I didn't hear anything from him again. But um, the farmers, on the first day I was going to run it, it was raining like a bitch. So about 50 farmers showed up. As everybody heard, I mean, one of the things about Kansas, if you get what you're doing, just call your neighbor and they'll tell you. So uh, all these farmers were there and they were in the 
plant. The plant's a pretty good sized room, you know. It's, uh, you know, it's like 80 feet long, 40 feet wide, and 50 foot tall. And they're uh, all standing in there, and I looked at them, and it was getting hard to walk around them to do the stuff I needed to do. So I got up on top of the machine, and I looked down and said, hey, you guys, uh, I just want to let you know we're getting ready to put 3,000 gallons of butane in the tank here to make sure it's not leaking or anything. I don't know if that meant anything to you. Within five minutes, there wasn't a truck in the parking lot. <laughs> they all put the hell out of there. And we filled it up, and it didn't leak, and it ran perfect. First time. First time we turned it on, did exactly what it was designed to do. It worked. Filled it up with gas, dumped it out, recovered it, shut itself down. So I was a pretty happy boy. Got a lot of uh, great feedback from. Uh, I worked with Roberte, a big perfume company in France, and the, the guy who was the head of it, uh, Dr. Julian. Uh, I sent him some pictures. I had been extracting stuff for him in Switzerland. And when we got the factory built, I sent him a few pictures. Well, he got on a jet and flew there and came out in the middle of Buttfuck, Egypt, which is where we were. He walked in and sat down in a chair. He asked me for a chair, and I gave it to him. And he sat there just looking around for about an hour. At the end of the hour, he turned around and he said, John. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you are, you must know you are more than 100 years ahead of everyone. And for him to say that, because he had been my teacher all the while I was in India, uh, I tried to get them to give us extraction work, and they wouldn't, and they wouldn't. And I bugged him so much that one day he sent me a box of uh, lavender that was three years old, covered in dust. And he said, John, when you can extract this, send me the oil. But when it's good, I call you and we talk. When it's not good, I, you don't hear again, okay? So I said, yeah. So he sent it to me. I extracted it. I sent it back to him. Three days later, he was on the phone stuttering. He was so excited that the extraction was so good. Even his latest brand new oil didn't smell that good. And so I learned that the butane process exchanges more than just uh, a salvation when it's taking these things out. It refreshes the material. When we were in Switzerland. Um, these guys uh, brought me to a warehouse and they said, here, you know, this is a warehouse that was like 600 feet long, 200 feet wide, and 50 foot high. And it was full of six foot by six foot by six foot boxes of last year's marijuana crop that they had grown in Switzerland. But it smelled like piss in the place. They walked in and I looked over and said, why does it smell like urine? And they go, well, that's the problem. They go, some mice has got in the building here. And it didn't take long. They filled up every box in the building full of mouse nests, and they pissed on all of it. And we don't know, do we have to burn it or what? So um, that was how I developed my uh, 
my separation technique for separating a pound in 10 seconds because I was trying to do two things. I was trying to refresh the trichrome so it didn't smell like mouthpiece for one. And for two, uh, I was trying at the same time using a static electric process to try to pull uh, mold spores up, which is probably still uh, a viable thing if you have the right frequency to put into these plates, you can still make it happen. But a lot of other things happened at the same time, too. But uh, I did that, and then uh, we made like 880 kilos of uh, pressed Keith hash corn. And they were wondering, what, what do we do with the rest of it? And I said, oh, I can make an extractor. We can extract the oil out of it. And uh, change the some of the trichomes mixed with the oil and make it into really high grade hash. And so they were well. We tried to mix oil and hash before, and it's a very difficult process. And so yeah, it could be if you tried using all the methods that are wandering around that people talk about. They said, yeah, well, we don't want to use kerosene because it makes it very uh, harsh. And I said, yeah, well, here's what you do. You get the oil, clean oil, and you put it in a big container, and you cover it with about four or five inches of liquid nitrogen, and you start crushing it up. And uh, it crushes really easy. Just take a four-by-four and stick it in there. And in about 15 minutes' time, it, it looks like flour floating in water. And it's just so thick, it's opaque. So that's the oil, right? So now you throw in a shitload of these trichromes, of around 40-50% in with regard to the oil quantity, and you stir the whole thing up. Well, now the liquid nitrogen is becoming a solvent. Although it's not a solvent, but it's in this particular case, it's a solvent because it's letting you mix the oil and the trichromes. And they mix, you stir it up, and it makes a beautiful mixture. And you set the container outside and let all the nitrogen bleed off. And when it's done, you can reach in and grab a handful of this oil hash mix and roll it up into a temple mouth, soft as a baby's butt, burns residue free, smells like crazy good, unlike the uh, uh, water-based ones that some French guy talks about. Um, I don't, uh, I separate the trichomes off without the water. It's competitive. It's a huge extra pain in the ass that you don't need to go through. But a lot of people are stuck on bubble bags and stuff like that. And they think that's the cat for dollars. I don't think so, but anyway, opinions like asshole. I don't think it's the camp necessarily the cat's pajamas. It just seems to be the most easiest, uh, you know, home home method. You know, dry sift for me seems to be a little bit of work, but uh, bubble hash is, you know, seems to be easy, efficient method. You know, it's basically. Uh, it's neither easy. 
nor efficient. It's a pain in the ass and you got a pension. Look, when I first started extracting oil, I needed to find a place to get raw material. I used to buy the leftover from the guys that were doing bubble hash. I would buy all their stuff after they were done with it. You know, there would, there would be big soggy messes and we would dry it out and throw it in the extractor and get the other 40% of oil that they didn't get that was in the leaves. And so we used to, we made a pretty good living doing that for a long time until we finally uh, maxed out the supply of the guys making bubble hash. And they started uh, getting suspicious. And, hey, you know, because we used to buy it for like $5 a kilo for the old uh, proceeds from bubble hash. So you can see by that math there, even if you're not a mathematical genius, that it's not easy, nor is it practical or a good thing because half of your fucking yield stays in the thing after you made your bubble stuff. You've only gotten the trichromes out of it. I don't know. That's like uh, uh, buying a chicken, cutting the breast off and throwing the rest away. You know, hey, I got a chicken breast. What about the legs? What about the thigh? And, uh, you know, anyway, that's how I looked at it. There is a lot of good material I, there. I, you know, I do... I feed the water to my plants. You know, I do utilize them. You know, so what's the plant waste? Somewhat, I guess. But uh, JD's in chat says, as you got a couple of questions now. <laughs> JD in JD's in chat says, for 20 years I've tried to get Andra to tell me his hash method. See if he'll give us a little hint. <laughs> No, I can't really, guys. Um, I licensed it to someone, and um, I couldn't uh, violate the terms of the license by giving that away. Uh, it's just the way it is. Sorry. I, I gave PHO out, and a, a year or so ago, when I was really sick, and I wasn't able to get around, and uh, I had zero stash i was living in this little cabin up in the mountains and i went on instagram and a few other spots and i asked if anybody could help me out with some stash because i was sick and i wasn't making any money and i wasn't getting around and exactly one person sent me uh, some concentrate and he didn't actually send it to me i was on the sidewalk in arcata walking down the sidewalk and he pulled his truck over and yelled at me hey andra and then he had a little baby jar like they put everything in now and it was full of little diamond crystals he said this is for you i've been saving it so that was that that actually taught me a lesson about giving away tech and if you don't give it to people they get all angry at you and pissed off that you didn't want to share it and i'm like excuse me uh, how I got it was critical thinking. Why not give it a try yourself? If you were able to do critical thinking, you wouldn't be here telling me that I need to tell it to you in the interest of sharing. Fuck that noise. I gave plenty of uh, hints Denver would... over the years. What? I didn't mean to cut you off, Andrew. 
I didn't mean to cut you off. Ned Denver was asking, uh, what okay. which, what one little hash making technique that you wish you would have learned way, way earlier? So which one of your methods do you wish you would have learned way earlier than the rest? Well, look, while I was in Vietnam, I used to fly uh, to Thailand on what they called uh, MATS, Military Air Transport Service. We could fly on an Air Force plane to somewhere else around the world where the Air Force flew for free. And so I would go to Thailand and buy duffel bags full of Buddha stick. I used to pay 10 cents a stick in Thailand and I'd bring them back to uh, base camp and sell them for a quarter, <laughs> which is like real cheap Buddha sticks. They were, you know, maybe seven inches long and nice fat ones like that. People would pay 25 cents, you get four for a dollar. And, uh, but I had like lots and lots and lots of them because I was buying in Thailand. And while I was there in Thailand, I learned about finger hash from cutting down plants and processing them and so forth. This Thai girl turned me on to this uh, really potent finger hash. And I once bought a bunch of uh, just trichome powders that, you know, when they dry the Buddha sticks, they sew them onto these little bamboo sticks and then set them in these uh, drying racks until the trichomes fall down. So I, whenever I used to go there, I used to buy bowls uh, of the trichromes. And also, I would buy any and all seeds that I could get from top of soil. And they always had like, uh, you know, 200 gallons of seeds. So I, I could buy five-gallon bucket loads. And I used to uh, buy number 10 cans that I could seal. I sent off to the States and got a can and sealer set up sent to me in Vietnam and I would load it with seeds and the trichromes and seal it and put them in these little Sanyo refrigerators because when we were in Vietnam if you were a combat soldier which I was uh, you sent whatever you went back to the states with no customs just went straight back so I would buy these Sanyo refrigerators at the PX, stuff them full of these cans, or I would stuff them full of these Vietnamese dolls that had mayonnaise jars packed with Buddha sticks and sealed with uh, electrical tape and paraffin and shove them up the butt in these dolls and send them back. And I sent uh, 36 uh, of those packages back to my mom, which was in her in the garage when I got back from Vietnam when I was getting over being shot um, I stayed in the hospital nearby where she was and she was always like you want me to open one of those packages and bring one of them here and I'm like no 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 I'll, it's going to be a surprise mom I'll, I'll, after I get out of the hospital I'll show you dolls for you and she goes well they're for me why can't I open it up go, well there's a lot of stuff in there and then I, you know, I'll bring it to you, don't worry. So uh, when I got out of the hospital, I had all these 
refrigerators, including some cans full of keef and about a jillion seeds. I saved those. I saved uh, one and a half cans um, that I put in jars and filled with a little bit of nitrogen. And exemption from the doctor so that I can grow enough pot to juice it so I can have 99 plants at a time. So. I'm going to pass that out by Vietnamese and Afghani seeds and uh, put them to work in my garden this summer. So it should be interesting that uh, none of the seeds are going to be remotely similar to any of the stuff that's around anywhere. Uh, last year I popped a couple of Vietnamese seeds and one of them looked like a palm. These were really not skinny, and this plant grew right next to a blue dream. And the blue dream got PM on it and just caved in and became a, a mess in the bottom of the pot. And this Thai plant was right next to it, and no, no PM got over on the Thai plant at all, it was very resistant to it. So I think I've got. You know, back in those days, I wasn't exactly sorting the seeds. I was like, yeah, five pounds of those. I got the surprises, but five is a surprise. A good one, too. I can't say it's been bad. I mean, there's been ups and downs and sideways. But I, I got to spend a long time in India and go to places and have experiences that I don't think are uh, to be had again. Not very many people have had that kind of experience to walk. It's six, seven months by the three passes. At the end of that seven months, my, my hiking boots were in tatters long before gotten a set of uh, local truck tire soles made. And the guys had uh, arranged with the local villagers and they gave me a big giant orange woolen robe to wear. And my jacket was starting to go to hell in a handbasket. But you know, uh, I wouldn't trade any. Those little kids watching them breathe again to be okay. Because all that was more valuable than any money I could have gotten from it. I, I didn't take any money when I was doing that anyway. I was living at the ashram. Uh, we got three meals a day and a room to sleep in. And, uh, that was okay with me at the time. Uh, when Annie burnt the house down and came to India. I ran into some fortune, and uh, I, I worked on this one lady, and she gave me a four-foot-tall alligator cord. 
so it was a good thing. And that's what he thought. They had a storm coming off it. I ended up, after I got paid with that, I ended up selling it to somebody else for $25,000. That kind of money in India, it carries you a long ways. Be careful. I was careful because I had handed the kids there. So I built a small house and threw the party so we wouldn't have to stay in any motels or anything. If I bought a plot of land for $200, built the house for $850. The laborers charge a dollar a day to put bricks up. They make a nice job of it too. I had the only bathtub at that point in time. I had to build it to me in the house. It's a nice one, you know, four foot deep, four foot long, and four foot wide. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a sweet time. Not to be, not to be changed, forgotten. It was. Uh, Every time I saw one of those little kids be okay with breathing and get out of bed and walk to his mom and dad, it was always a big charge for me. And the parents were always, they would bring a dish and a thing of water and they would wash your feet, you know. I was always like, oh, no, 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 don't need to wash my feet. It's, I, what I did was my job. And uh, so to wash my feet. And that was, I know, kind of a way of saying to wash it off. You're powerful. You're rich. You can deal with these garments, so you take them kind of situation with the foot touching and foot washing. So I used to avoid it whenever possible because uh, it wasn't what I was willing to do there. Wasn't looking to uh, be a hero or anything like that. I just uh, I enjoyed watching the smile on those little kids' faces. Simple as that. I went there for 90 days, and after I was there for 90 days, I realized, how can I leave? You know, first four months I was there, they they came to me and said the ashram, the water is no good. You can't drink it. So I showed them how to take four 50-gallon drums and filled up with crushed charcoal and made a charcoal filtering system. It's charcoal and sand. Right at the top of where the water tank was. We had nice pure water in the ashram after that. You know, it just became a way of life. People were very gracious. I liked being there. Um, I mean, in the morning, 4.35 o'clock in the morning, all the crows start. You're heading towards the Gurdwara, which is like a church. Take bhajans and then uh, go have a, a breakfast. And I would go to the hospital and work. And uh, I did that seven days a week. So did India become 
before Vietnam? Indra? Uh, no. Long after Vietnam. I went to Vietnam Thank in 1964. Goodness. I was going to say, man, war would have had been brutal after that trip. I mean, war would be brutal either way, but after finding inner peace, uh, it seemed like war would be twice as well. Bad. Well, don't assume that I found inner peace. <laughs> that would be uh, a mistake. I didn't. The journey of finding inner peace is a nonstop journey, and it just keeps happening. You know, it's not. You don't find inner peace, and then you're like. Okay, that's last thing on my bucket list was finding inner peace. Well, I, I misspoke there. I, I'm more of a, a better way of life that would lead to inner peace. I guess that's how I should have it. Every step in your life is a better way. Every move you make is leading you in the right direction. There's only the one lesson here. That's love. There's nothing else. It's the only thing you can take away. You can either take that away or you can take fear and disgust and hate away. Although I wouldn't recommend it, but that doesn't seem to matter. A lot of people are very invested in war and killing other people or getting over perceived insults or of vengeance. I can happily say I've never tried to get vengeance on anyone in my life, no matter how bad they might have harmed me. I always just said, okay, there you go, God. Here's somebody else in line. And if I'm yours, I'm going to leave it up to you to take care of this. So that's generally how I managed it. I don't chase after people with guns. Look, you go once and really don't ever want anything to do with a weapon or anything like that ever again. You see people's bodies torn in pieces. You hit your, you know, as a field medic, I was a combat field medic, I attended far too many deaths. It says my internet connection is unstable. Life is unstable. You're born pre-dead. And uh, until I'm 75. But get that off, I still look alive. So Annie had a triple aneurysm, so she doesn't really remember me. She says she does nowadays, but I ask her lots of questions that make it clear that she doesn't. I understand her wanting to feel like her memory is okay, but it's not the same person who I knew for 35 years.
so that went out the window. You get all these tests in life and you have to try to stand up to them, make it. I've had some pretty severe testing. Still here, still kicking. I'm still making artistic endeavors. And uh, I pass on as much information as people want to take in. You can't force anybody to do anything. You can't force growth on them. And I know our government's way of doing it is dump some fertilizer on you and see if you grow. But that's getting stuff that's stinky. Our government is kind of twisted. Every time. <coughs> <coughs> Every time they want to teach you a lesson <coughs> or get you to think some new way, they make a new fucking movie and put it out. And you go to a bunch of people go to the movie and they leave going, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. We're making the wrong kind of movies, okay? All this violence is... Uh, you know, we were talking more violence than talking about that a little bit before the show there Indra and I think you're right I think they they do uh, pre-program uh, a little bit of their agenda into a lot of this the movies and TV shows and shit that we watch to kind of condition us uh, or normalize some of the shit that's coming up to us well you know when I was in India and Vietnam, especially in Vietnam, you'd get these USAID, USAID people who would come around to these villages and put on these little plays where someone would act out morality plays. And then they'd leave and then the villagers would you know, do what they're going to do anyway. But um, I noticed that for years that every everywhere I went. And not long back, I started thinking, you know what, we're the villagers here. They, they make these movies and they show them to us to make us change how we think. If they want us to start feeling revolutionary, they start publishing that kind of shit. And that's mind control here. I never wanted to come back here from India in the first place, but started getting sick from the Agent Orange stuff. And uh, I knew I couldn't do it from there. And, uh, so I came back with the hopes that the government would take care of me. And that was also after I wrote the pet in uh, Switzerland. Yeah, I, I built that factory in 1998. It did not explode into a, a million dollar a month thing. We did start making a couple hundred grand a month before the before it was over, but you're talking also a couple hundred grand when we got it in those days, now it would be a couple of million dollars. So 
that factory has the capability to extract. Well, we had 14,000 extractions there. Every seed, nut, leaf, root, berry, fruit, treaty, bark, wood, animal tissue, or fungi, we extracted it there. And, uh, there's a, an ammonia freezer there for, at this moment as we speak. This got ounce samples of whatever it was we extracted. Unless it was something that only produced very rare, and then it might be just grams of it. Some of this expensive stuff. And they would let you keep a certain amount, even if it was really expensive, so that you had something to compare the last time you extract it and the next time you're going to extract So we would keep some for historical purposes and for comparative sake. Uh, had a complete laboratory there. Uh, 1,900 square feet upstairs in the factory with explorers for chemicals and the right kind of cabinets and glass and all kinds of instruments, name it. And uh, somebody can still make something out of the factory. It's just that, folks, I'm 75. Last thing you want to do is go spend a day humping. I don't want to I go to Kansas either. It's Kansas it's the time though, and it seems like you were way ahead of your time. I mean, if once things get legal, man, it seems like that. Uh, that place would be able to be opened and you know start really putting out a lot of quality THC extract there. But like I said, that's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. Do you not just uh, trust uh, you know pulling in quality people around you to you know work for you, and you just kind of oversee things? Well, the uh, interesting, I just got an interesting text message. Anyway, um, you know, I just, uh, I'm beat. You know, I did a lot of hard work when I was, before I went to uh, medical school in the summers, I used to do firewood and I had a, 40 foot long Diamond Rio truck stake bed and we'd go up in the San Angelo National Forest in the winter when the miners didn't have anything to do and buy firewood from them and then drive it down to uh, for it to put it on your porch no matter how bad the walk was because I always had a couple Mexican guys that would do that. Still what a lot of work, loading the trucks, driving it out of there, driving it down, the stress of driving it down to the mountains with an overload condition. And then driving all around San Francisco, finding parking spots on the street, some of those narrow ass goddamn streets there. And these guys that put stuff out in front and back of the truck and then run a quarter or two upstairs 
the second or third floor of this building. So I make enough money to last for the summer. We had a place in uh, Tuttletown, California. There's a sign on the town on the way in. One way says on, on the sign, welcome. And if you look at the other side of the sign, it says, please come again. Pretty small, but it was close to the woods, and I could buy truckloads of firewood and cut it up there on the lot. And those are some hard. I worked my ass out in those days to go to to finish. <coughs> Osteopathic training, and uh, it was tough. I'm still alive. Maybe I'm alive because of all the hard work and oh, I agree. made my body tough. I would say that's just have one hundred percent there. <laughs> I know a lot of guys that's you know worked their whole life all the you know real hard like that. They're afraid to stop. <laughs> They're afraid to stop. But they, at the AJR right now, I think there's a fine line to where you got to cut that hard work off and still be able to have a, a nice, functional second half. And I think if you cross over that line with that, you know, super hard work that you're destined to, you know, keep doing that. Otherwise, you know, you may, when you stop, lock up and almost, you know, pass along. Yeah, I. It's not that I want to stop. Uh, I got shot in the back uh, in Vietnam, and I have uh, three titanium cages holding my low back together and a rod. And uh, what's that has caused gait problems, which has worn out my left hip and my left knee, and uh, I need a knee and a hip operation before I end up in a wheelchair pretty soon, because now I can walk about 75 or 100 feet with a cane. Amen. Break time. I need a Uber and a half hour break. So, and the house where I'm living is in the mountains at the end of a road. Gotta have a four wheel drive to get up here. So I'm not taking a lot of walks because I'm not stable, my balance is thrown off. Uh, yeah, that and the diabetes has made the bottom of my feet less sensitive. So I guess I can be tilting over before I know it. When I get tired of falling down, it hurts. I've taken a couple of good falls down in town. A guy with a couple of pit bulls who came tearing out of his car after me. And when I turned around to look at him, there was a curb in front of me and I tripped on it and looked down. My left and right hand swelled up like footballs for about a week. And I got over it then. Gotta remember, I did this uh, kind of manipulation 
and I did it for uh, 38 years, and I would I would get a hold of people's soft tissue and make changes and stuff. My fist and my grip and everything got to be pretty intense. And one point for about 10 years, I could take the tennis ball, I used to do a demo, just take it and just pop it and squeeze it until it popped. <clears throat> that was, you know, 25 years ago. And I was seeing a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I would see 45 people a week. I still, once in a while, will take somebody on if they, you know, I, one of the things I learned to do over the years is to restore your breath. I can put you on the table, manipulate your soft tissue in 10 minutes, increase your breath 100%. <clears throat> and so to a lot of people, that, that kind of a change means a lot. And uh, you have to know how to do the manipulation. Understanding it, it was born of 37 years of practicing it. And after that kind of uh, length of time, you learn a thing very well. And uh, I learned it so well that from the first manipulation, the first move I make on your body, your breath starts increasing right away. I've watched it a hundred thousand times. First thing that happens is people cry. And they cry because um, in that moment they realize that their tension, their inner strife has kept them from taking a good breath all the way until that moment. And when they can take that breath, it's such a huge release to be able to fill yourself with air everywhere in your abdomen, your cavity, your lungs. It always uh, brings tremendous relief. Love with a lot of tears. And it's always a big change. Your, met your metabolism changes. I mean, <clears throat> your breath is, is like a flame on a stove, you know. You turn it up and metabolism is a little hotter. You're a very energetic person. Otherwise, maybe you're a couch potato. But uh, when, when you can breathe again, it's always a, an interesting uh, thing to pass through because it's like you left your old self behind. So you have to reset on yourself because you can breathe. So I made a career out of that for about 37 years, uh, helping people breathe and balance and uh, gain more range of motion. Again. a lot of Olympic people all around the world. In fact, when I was in India, I didn't see them for Because uh, an example, this, they brought this young girl who could do the butterfly stroke. But she looked when she was standing there like she was doing butterfly stroke. And uh, her coach said, uh, she's not improving, she's static, she's staying where she's at. So I put her through uh, 10 hours or so of processing, and she stood perfectly normal after that. And that year, she went to the Olympics and uh, won. 
And so after that, the country had this reputation that people would show up. People would follow me in all sorts of places when you get treatment. I've had people catch up on, catch up to me on the trail in India in the middle of nowhere. Hey, are you Tucker Davis? You go, yeah. We've been looking for you for two weeks. Jeez, you guys up the eye or something? No, no. I can't breathe or this knee hasn't worked since, you know, the camel kicked me in it or something like that. I always seem to be able to, without pills or without an operation, fix it with my hands. A lot of people used to say your hands feel like steel scalpels when they go in to my tissue. It feels like they're making huge, big changes. Well, uh, it was huge, big changes. I still get, uh, I worked on for 10 hours, so still going, hey, John, you know what? I can still breathe like a champ for 25 years. But in case I run into you again, can I get an additional session? I would say, yeah, sure. But the breathing um, had a lot to do with my spiritual aspirations. I wanted to learn how the body works with the breath. If you want to go to sleep, you can't really get to sleep. You're suffering from insomnia. Uh, close off the right nostril, which might look like the left nostril in the video. Close off your right nostril and uh, breathe in through the left nostril, full breath. Let it out. And then we'll close the other side and breathe it out. And then into the left, out to the right. Into the left, out to the right. You can do it like this. You know. And pretty soon you wake up in the morning going, wow, that was a good night's sleep. It'll put you right to sleep. And if you wake up and you're What's low that? energy, get some non-coffee energy. You, you just reverse the process. You breathe in through the right nostril and out through the left. And uh, what's going on there is that, well, you know, if you, if you hyperventilate, if you take a lot of breath in through your mouth, you get dizzy and you know that sensation, right? Hello? Um, yeah, yeah. I said right. I was just a little farther away from what. Is there, it's a panicky okay, feeling. I, so don't, I don't like that. Nobody feeling. does that. Yeah, well, nobody really does that. Instead, what happens is all day long, your nose sitting. And that happens. One side will be dominant, and the other side will be less. So all day long, it happens time and day in, day out, awake, asleep, whatever. And there's these uh, in the air. In India, they call it <coughs> pranayams. And uh, there's negative and positive eyes, actually, for what they are. But they, and 
your nose is busy filtering them out. Your nose is a regulator for your body to breathe in, in the right mix, the air around you for your body. And so being that's the case, maybe you can control it. And you, you can try what I said just now with right now so you'll discover it's a primitive method of gaining and shedding energy you can go to sleep and you can wake your body up with it it's like you know pouring a little starting fluid in and uh there, there are thousands of different breaths that you can take and you can use sound um, you can use posture um, you can use mudras along with it and change your body and if your body changes to these things that you're shooting for it will change your mind your mind and your body are, are inseparable you know the mind is what they call the third eye the real third eye is the mind and the mind's supposed to look at things and be able to understand them and uh, that's why they calling it the third eye. It's the contemplation purposes to learn discrimination. <clears throat> because discrimination is an important part of this world. Being able to discriminate is a almost a spiritual power. It's an understanding which will bring energy. We start flying in with every breath we take. <clears throat> And so I think uh, it's led me down <clears throat> many trails. I mean, I, I tried all kinds of different fine realization, not to be found in a drug, although it has a pretty, uh, I would say, incredible experiences in drugs. old-time MDA, before MDMA, old-time MDA, which used to be called the hug drug. First, open, and you'd, your worst enemy could walk in the door and you'd want to go hug him and work everything out because you don't want to have any bad vibrations in your life anymore. And I found it very similar to pure raw mescaline. Uh, it was the same thing. I did when I tried wrestling the first time, I didn't even want to move any of the rocks on the path that I was walking on. Because they had their place. Who was I to disturb them? I, I carefully walked on the rocks and they accepted my feet, my feet accepted them. It was a yeah. I mean there's a lot of experience. Here still, I don't know if you know, you south of Nevada, there's a couple of ranches down there that you can go and spend the weekend at, and they'll give you a peyote trip. And uh, you can either join the group or you can get a little, you know, eight by eight room with a couch and triple peyote. And uh, 
always looking for how do you get to feel that I didn't want to feel it when I was high I wanted to be immersed in that kind of bliss and just feel it every second and so that's what led me to uh, do all these things like take these walks through the mountains at night in the Himalayas amongst all kinds of strange situations Because uh, searching for that there, if it was available, and, um, I tell you, I I did many things to try to find that. My uh, teacher saw me. I asked him one time that I heard that there was a teacher in North India who could teach you how to get out of your body. I wondered if I could have permission to go and see him because Swami is my teacher and you have to take permission before you go see another teacher otherwise you're and so I asked him he said yeah I could and go ahead it was in April it was so I went find out if this guy knew something or if he can teach me something. So I went there uh, really open for it. And it was a long, a strange trip getting there because uh, once when I was in the interview room with Swami, a guy named Lewis was in the interview room at the same time. And uh, I just kind of casually knew him. I didn't really know him. But a lot of people, when you're an Indian and you're in America, obviously you're their bosom buddy, right? And so, uh, we were here. Louis raised his hand to Swami, said yes. And Louis says to Swami, uh, Swami Ji, is John going to get realization in this life? And I was sitting there, could hardly believe my ears that somebody else would be asking this incarnation of Krishna that we were sitting with if I was going to get self-realization. And I thought, what the hell is he talking about? What's up with that? Why would he even do that? And all, well, all these thoughts were floating through my mind when he said it. I looked up at Swami, and Swami looked at me with a very mischievous grin on his face, right? I mean, really, eyes were twinkling and big, and they were looking right at me. And he, even though he was looking right at me, he answered to Lewis, yes. <laughs> and from that day, for three years, I couldn't shake Lewis off my trail in India, no matter what. Uh, example, I wanted to go to see this guy who could teach you how to get out of your body. 
Lewis was like, let's take a jet. I'll pay. And I, I mean, he was a lawyer. And I was like, no, I, <coughs> it's a sacred journey, and I don't want to just up there like that. I'm, I'm going to go on the train. And so he's like, okay, I'll reserve a air-conditioned car for us. And I'm like, no, no, I'll, I'll get my own train ticket. So I went in the morning early and got a third-class seat, which turned out to be a bench in a boxcar with straw on the floor in case you had to do some business. And, uh, and Lewis, I guess, took a jet there. And he hired some guy at the other end, because Lewis had a lot of money, to go to where the uh, train came in and keep an eye out for me. And so uh, it was where we went to, where the where I got out of the train was, at a place called Chandragat. And Chandragat is in the foothills of the Himalayas. It's pretty high up. It's a definitely a mountain city. And uh, this guy, when I got out of the car, I was, it was, after being four days in this cattle car, I was pretty beat. And this guy comes up to me and he goes, uh, Are you Dr. Davis? And I said, Yes, why? He said, uh, uh, Mr. Lewis has engaged a car for you to come to the hotel. So I was like, okay, so let's go. So I went out, got the car, and we're driving through this really poor section, and there's these wooden hotels there that the Sikhs in India have. And always read about them falling down and burning. Anyway, I told the guy to stop here. I want to see if they have a room. He was like, oh, no, he says, eh. Room here will cost you 20 rupees a night, and it's not nice, it's not good, and it's fire danger. And I'm like, uh, yeah, let me stop a second anyway. So, I had a room on the top floor, which was 40 rupees, uh, which is not much, you know, four bucks. And I took it, and I was settling down for the night. This was the town where the guy was. Who had the ashram? Who could teach you how to get out of your body? So I decided I'll go next morning looking for him. I'm too tired. I mean, it was already like maybe 12:30 at night. And so I told him go ahead and take off, and I'm going to stay here. So he goes back and gets Lewis and them, and brings them back. And <clears throat> they're uh, come upstairs and they want me to go with him to hunt down this guy. And I said, no, it's too late at night. I'm tired and I'm not going to go without me. They said, what do we do if we find him? And I said, well, hang out with him. Send the cab for me in the morning. So they took off. They were gone about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. And I hear these footsteps coming up the stairwell, which is wooden. And uh, I hear somebody knock on the door, and I open the door, and there's this little old guy standing there. He's got a tray with a tea service on it. 
He's got a white Nehru jacket on, kind of thing, you know. So I let him in the room. I'm fixing. He's fixing a cup of tea for me, and he's just down on the couch. And I'm, I'm like, hey, "Can I help you?" And he says, "Yes, you came to see me, didn't you?" <laughs> it was the guy. I mean, he came and found me at the motel, right? So we're sitting there. And when he came in the door, he had a really thick Mexican or uh, Indian accent. And after he introduced himself to me, suddenly he could speak perfectly, same kind of English, you and I. And, uh, so we were sitting there having this hot cup of tea, and these Indian teacups are just like giant bowls, it's huge, and it's got this uh, some local cow's milk in it. You know, it, it's just good stuff. And, uh, and he's looking at me and he says, uh, did you bring a question for me? And I said, well, yeah, I, I heard this story that you could, and he was sitting, he kept getting closer and closer off the table to me. He got right up to me and he said, well, I said, you teach me how to get out of my body. And he tapped me on the forehead right there. And as soon as he did that, I don't know where the fuck I was, but I wasn't in that room anymore. I was somewhere, but I couldn't make anything out. It was lots of colors, lots of light, lots of sounds. Um, I felt watched. I didn't know what was going on. And I was cold. And then all of a sudden I heard his voice say, John, John, come here. I was back in my body sitting there with him. And I was shaking like a leaf, man. There was no place on me that wasn't vibrating. And he said, uh, what did you see? And I told him, you know, I couldn't tell. It was a lot of colors. And it was kind of like a psychedelic colors like almost like being a mess with your eyes closed but then he said go drink some more tea and we'll drink some more tea and I stopped shaking and I was calmed down a bit and he says want to try again and reaches out and bang tapped me in the it again not like he gave me a chance to answer or anything because he fucking did not just you know ready set go boom so, um, <clears throat> this time, I was outside the hotel, up above the hotel, above the roof, and I could see that, because I, I could see the road leading back down to the thing, I could see other roads leading back up the hill behind us, and lights. I was wondering how I was floating there, and, uh. I heard this sound, this, this incredible sound. It was almost like a chant, almost like a, a breath. It was almost like food. It was this very beautiful sound. And I turned when I could hear it. My whole body turned. And I was looking at this hill that was back up behind the hotel, but much further back in the mountains. And I could see a light 
on the side of the hill that was being lit from something behind that hill. And uh, I was looking at it and I was really wondering, what the heck is that? What's going on here? I suddenly heard this old man call my name again, John. And wham, back in my body again. But somehow he had a, the tea was fresh and hot. Anyway, he gave me another tea and I shook for about half an hour. <clears throat> and then, or it might have been less than that. I can't, I couldn't tell because I was in such a, uh, in between place of mind. I wasn't sure what was going on. And, but I knew that I didn't want to stop what was going on. I wanted to find out what was going to go on. And so then he looked at me and he said, I think you're ready. And he reached out and bat me on the forehead with his finger again. Once again, no chance to say no. Not like I would have. I don't think I would have said no. I would have been really happy to just say, yeah, yeah I'm all ready for that. And, uh, so this time I, I was right up out of the building again. <coughs> and I again turned to the hill and saw the light shining on the hillside. And so my body just started floating towards it. As I was wondering about it, the attraction became stronger and stronger. And, I flew to that spot in the mountain and around the corner, and there was a beautiful glowing city. All the buildings in the city glowed like they were smooth ceramic, but glowing. And all these people were walking down below, and it was in the winter, and they all had warm collars and things on and boots and hats, and they were walking and humming. The whole place was humming. There was this vibration or this hum vibration that was going that everybody was part of, and it was also part of them, they were part of it, and so if that makes any sense to you, but when I flew around the corner, I was about 20 feet above everybody, and they looked up and saw me, and they invited me down, they said, come on down, come on, and I get, I got a lot closer, but I couldn't go all the way down, I could only get about 10 feet up above, was as close as I could get, and they said that, uh, it was great seeing me, and I thought we'd see you soon. And I heard the guy call my name, and bang, I was back in that room again. Said, and I was looking at him, and uh, I know he came in, he had this neighbor jacket on, but now when he was leaving, he had this really nice embroidered thing on, and a really nice shawl, because I don't know where any of that came from. But he looked a lot more regal, and uh, he told me that now you know how to get out of your body. And so I've done this favor for your teacher. And so go back to him now. And you know this art. So use it whenever you like. And so that was uh, quite a thing. The next morning, <clears throat> Lewis and those guys showed up. And they said they found out where the art was at. And they want me to come. And I'm like, no, no. Ten minutes after you guys left last night, he came here and was here for some hours. I'm going to leave now. They were all pissed off at me that I must have called him or something. 
<clears throat> even though there was no phone in the motel. And I didn't have a phone before that was a time before you carried Motorola with you everywhere, yeah. That was when the Motorola phones were like monstrous things like walking copies to the army. And who could afford them? They were like four thousand bucks back in those days. So couldn't work everywhere anyway. So uh, I, I I wouldn't I took off in the morning <clears throat> and uh, I, I didn't see those guys again because I decided to take a second-class train back south. And, uh, yeah, it was a crazy thing. I, I got back and I, I could tell the whole story to Annie. And that night, I had this dream from Swami that he came to me as baby Krishna. And... I had a room, a separate little room from Ann and the kids because she had uh, Sarah and uh, Benny and they were just babies at the time. And so she was breastfeeding Benny and so they slept in the other room. <coughs> so I went to sleep that night and had this dream that Swami came to me as uh, Krishna, a little baby Krishna, beautiful little baby, blue skin, and uh, made all this sacred stuff for me, gave me Amrit and spread it on me and uh, he said that <coughs> I think it's a dream but when I wake in the morning I'll know different so in the morning when I woke up I was going to set up on the side of my bed and I looked and the whole room was covered with holy ash, this Mabuti it was just thick it was like an eighth of an inch thick everywhere of everything and there was a set of baby footprints from the door to my bed and back out again. And I called in and the kids and I said, don't come in the room, but just go stand in the doorway. And they came and they saw the footprints. And so I told them the, the stream that I had that Swami gave me. Uh, and in that dream, he explained a lot of things and uh, told me that in this life, um, I was here because when he comes, he brings me. And that uh, I would culminate a lot of learning in this life. And uh, having done so, won't require to take another incarnation on earth, but instead can go to Shiva's heaven spend a lot of lifetimes there. And Swami told me that he was paying very close attention to me. He made, he materialized the single drug scene on a solid gold chain and put it around my neck. When someone asked him why he gave me something like that, because he didn't usually give out that kind of thing. He said it was, he was marking me as his. And I've had that chain and that drug scene for all these years now, and uh, it, it was about 10 or 11 inches long. It just barely fit on my neck, left a little tiny space for my finger well, the day he put it on me. And now all these years later, it's 28 inches long. And 
Uh, I don't have any explanation for that, how the chain got that much longer. But um, Swami told me a story one morning that um, there was a boy who wanted to see Brahma. And he was born on the banks of the Chittavachi, a river, a sacred river in India. And um, he's very poor. His father was a farmer. And he was always asking his farmer where was the statue of Brahma so he could go and see Brahma. And the father would always tell him he has to be in your heart. You know, we don't have any such statues around here. So one morning, the kid found a bank of clay at the river, and he started. Thought, I'll just make my own statue of Brahma. So he built the statue, life-size statue of Brahma, absolutely perfect in every detail, and uh, even got berries and stuff from the woods and used the dye for the various colors that he needed to have on it. And on the morning that it was all completed, um, he woke up and he went there and he saw that the statue was ready. And so he wanted to make evolutions to it. And so he got some water and he washed the statue's feet and was praying to Brahma that he wanted to have a vision of it, a real vision. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> Brahma stepped down off of the stool and took the form of the statue, but alive. And the boy uh, was just put in a world of bliss, you know. He was just so happy that he wanted to cast off his body, his coil, because he could hardly contain the joy. <clears throat> and so Brahma said, look, I'm really pleased with your devotion and your prayer and your actions. And so I want to give you a reward. I want you to think of something that you, you want to have and ask me and I shall give it to you. And the boy was pretty adamant. He was like, you know, Father... I don't, uh, I don't know what else to say, what else to ask for. I've seen you and now I'm happy. So I don't need it. Brahma says, well, I want you to think of something anyway. So the guy's thinking, he's thinking. And, uh, he says to Brahma, well, how about could you explain to me how Maya works, how the illusion actually works? I'd like to understand that. So Brahma says, you want to see how Maya works? So Brahma materializes an empty glass and gives it to the boy. He says, here, go up to the river and fill that and bring me a drink first. So the kid's like, no problem. Hustles down to the river. He's getting a drink. All of a sudden, out of the water, this beautiful woman, this Shakti, emerges. He's never seen a woman like this in his life. She's unreal. She's divine in nature. And she only has eyes for him. And so they get together, and they decide that they want to spend a life together. And um, 
he built a house there and they have three or four kids and he's out plowing the field one afternoon and a huge flood comes down and takes the house and the kids and the wife boom right down river gone and the guy's standing there heartbroken right and uh brahma says how about that glass of water and the guy looks down at his hand and he's got this glass of water he walks over to brahma, brahma says, that's how Maya works. It's an illusion. That's how it works. And well, uh, Brahma wanted to give him a further reward. And uh, he wanted him to think of something else. And the guy couldn't think of it, so saw me. Brahma made a gold chain with a rubruxi in it and hung it on his neck. And he said, as your wisdom grows, this chain will grow to imbibe your understanding. And when he died, it was 108 feet long, that chain. So he gained that much wisdom in his life. Swami told me that story long after he gave me that chain. And Many years before the chain grew to be 20-something inches long. But, uh, yeah, just some of the crazy stuff that happened. <clears throat> hey, my headphones are going to go off in a minute. And let's see what happens if it just switches over so that the, the microphone works. If it doesn't, we shut it down. But uh, any further questions? Hopefully it works. Uh, let me scan through chat here. We've been on the edge of our seat, basically listening here. Um, what an amazing story! You can you still hear us? You still sound good. Yeah, I mean, my headphones just told me, hey. Uh, it was down to ten percent juice. That's all. Hopefully, you can switch over to the speaker system. It should. Hey, it still sound good from here. That's for sure. Yeah, it seemed like it would have been tough to come back here after living over there. That's for sure. I think so. It's uh, on a monetary scale over here. It seemed like it would be uh, counterproductive for the life you've been living up until now or up until then. Can you hear me, Andra? See the headphones come off. I don't know if you can hear me. Can you hear me, Indra? You may have to reconnect the audio. Damn, we can make this work. How you guys doing? I know you guys have been enjoying this. Do you have any questions for Indra? Oh, I can hear you now. I don't know if you can hear me. Can you hear me? Oh yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you just fine. 
Yeah, it's been a great show so far. I don't understand how you could have came back uh, after living the life over there that was so peaceful. It seems like it would have been hard to adjust. There you go, I can hear you now. I can hear you now. I can hear you, you can't hear me. What a bummer. I could I could hear you, you, you just couldn't hear me. Yeah, I can hear you. You just couldn't hear me, I guess. You there, Indra? Man, I hope we can get this. I love my Indra interviews, that's for sure. Tons of respect for Mr. Indra. Hopefully we can get the audio straightened out here. I don't know. Can you hear me, Indra? I can hear you. <coughs> I can hear you if you can hear me, Indra. See if I can text him. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Hear you, Indra. Mic check. Hopefully, you guys. How you guys are doing tonight? What are you guys smoking on while we're hopefully can get a part two with Indra? Sorry about the dead air, guys. It happens. It happens. Oh, what did I mean? I can hear you. You hear again. me? Ah, there we go. We're back. Yeah. Good deal. Good deal. Basically, when I when we lost you there, I was asking, you know, how how did you manage to make it when you came back from over there? I mean, it had to be a tough transition from going to a nice, peaceful life to coming back to what had to be craziness back over here. Yeah, well, I married my, we, Johnny and I spent almost a couple of years building the factory. We did everything, you know, we built the building, we poured the cement, we made the extractors at the welding place, we, you know, we did it all. Most definitely. It took up all my time there for sure. Weather. And uh, yeah, I mean, it seriously kept me busy. You have no idea. You know, we had to conquer. We had to climb so many hills to build that factory. It wasn't funny, but we made most of the perfume for ten years over there. That a lot of the ladies wore Joy perfume. And 
all the Chanel's, we made the oils for all those. What was the so, most beneficial uh, extract you ever extracted? <laughs> <laughs> well, it does have its lot a lot of its beneficial uh, beneficial uses for sure, but uh, that was by uh, far the most beneficial. Well, to a lot of people, it was. I mean, we extracted small amounts. We extracted sponges. For the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, and uh, they normally only got a teaspoon of extract out of a big giant load of sponges, and we gave them a quart and a half of extract, which they said would last was a hundred years worth of research. So that was pretty beneficial. Was Sponges there any uh, substance with chemicals? So what what chemical was extracted out of there that was uh, so uh, beneficial or that uh, educational? I guess. There was too many to list. Even there was uh, in excess of four hundred different chemicals came out of the sponges uh, and a hundred of them never been seen before and uh, many of them 250 or more of them they couldn't eat so and sponges defend themselves with chemicals from being eaten so there's a quite a, an exotic array of chemicals they put different chemicals out for different fish It blows my mind that, uh, you know, some of the things that do get All those extracted. Years of extracting. Oh, listen, you, you have no idea. I mean, we wrote the book on a lot of extractions that done the old way with steam and heat produced one kind of a product and done our way cryogenically produced a vastly superior, completely different product. Uh, chamomile oil, for instance, was known for years to be blue. And uh, that's what everybody thought, chamomile oil is blue. They knew that there was a fraction in it that could help people with sleep. Uh, a German company found us back then in the uh, early 2000s, and they sent us a bunch of German chamomile, and we extracted it. And we found it to have two fractions, one fraction that was light, light yellow, almost like a very light urine color. And that was very, uh, it was like water. It was very uh, loose, didn't have any viscosity to it. And the second fraction was a very heavy refrigerator white molasses-like portion that was completely different. And uh, one of the things that the system was good at was if there was two or three fractions, uh, they would stay separate. You could put them in a separatory funnel and let each fraction out one at a time without any further uh, requirement for purification because uh, 
the fractions wouldn't mix. They were heated, like engines. But we found out that many of the things that were classic, like blue chamomile, was actually the result of using heat and steam to extract it rather than what was truly present. And uh, look, over 14 years of doing that, we learned a lot. You know, I mean, I could write an encyclopedia of things that we saw and learned uh, while we were doing that. There's a two six-inch windows on the extraction chamber in Kansas with lights, and you can look in and see. And when you're recovering butane with a vacuum, the oil will come to the surface as a bubble, and it'll create a crystal for that moment. The crystal will melt back down into the oil. And I took thousands of pictures of different crystals from different extractions that would form all the way from micro crystals to the size of coffee cup saucers. And um, Johnny and I used to spend whole evenings there peering in the extraction chamber when I was recovering to see what was going to manifest itself. It was so fascinating. Uh, yeah, we learned a lot. I learned to see uh, molecular crystals. And uh, I, I also found out uh, when you take a live, a living oil, I devised a method. I wanted to see how alive the oils were using our method. So uh, I would take a drop of pure water in a petri dish and I would put a drop of the extracted oil on top of that drop and put that float that in a bowl with liquid nitrogen so both of the drops would freeze and then I have a microscope that is set up in a cold box that I can set the temperature for it stays at five degrees and I can put this petri dish in the microscope and use the TV camera to the microscope to watch the oil when it thawed out. And when the oil thawed out from the extracts that we made, it created a crystal in the oil that would last for about five or 10 seconds. That was the exact flower of whatever it was we just extracted. The first one we saw was a sunflower and it had all the petals and the big thing in the middle that was crystalline. And uh, so then I got excited and I heated the oil to 62 degrees centigrade and tried the same experiment again. And all you got was an ice cube. So I developed the theory that the oil was living and that the way we extracted all it took everything that was alive out of the plant and just left behind the platforms that held all this good living stuff in there. Uh, this emulsion of oil and water and waxes and lipids that were in the plant. And so, um, yeah, it was a great time of uh, understanding through inquiry, which isn't often done so much anymore for some reason. But, um, yeah, it was... Uh, it's always been with me to look into something and find out how to take it apart. But I 
dad said when I was a kid, he gave me a screwdriver and I took everything in the fucking house apart. And uh, I had to call some repair guys to put some of it back together. Well, I don't recall that. He took great joy in telling that story all the time. And uh, when Johnny was three, I gave him a tiny, tiny one-inch pen knife. When I came home that night, and he says, "Hey, take a look at the, all the front porch." And I went out there, and there's all these screens out there. And I said, "What are all those?" <clears throat> that knife you gave your son—he cut all the screens in the house out. Friends of the family, you know, you get a new tool. Once again, internet connection unstable. Is it getting weird sound or anything there? Oh, no, it's fine. You sound just as good as the beginning here from on my end. That's for sure. Well, anyway, uh, get back to the age thing. I'm 75. It's 12 o'clock here. And I think it's probably about as far as I'm going to be able to run it tonight. I'm pretty pooped. But, um, That's fine with me, I, I, I really, I'm grateful for any time I can get from you, my friend. Anytime you want to come back, well, you know, it doesn't just tell me, you know. Anytime you want to come out and hang out, I'll, I'll make room for you. Mr. Andrew, we love to hear uh, your the stories throughout your travels and uh, the little bits of info that you do sprinkle on us when uh, you can. I understand a lot of that stuff's patent, you know, uh, protected and, you know, going to be sold. But, you know, you do drop us little hints every now and again. And we're, we're listening. We're grabbing them. <laughs> Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad you are. Uh, <laughs> I was on, uh, I've forgotten her name now, Tara or something. And uh, I dropped it. I, they asked me to come on. I wasn't on the show. I just was in their chat for a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, they started harassing me about giving up my tech. And I said, it's not mine to give you. And, then they got all jacked out of shape and said, oh, yeah, you're dangling it in front of us. And I said, I'm not dangling anything. I never offered you that information in the first place. You guys just decided amongst yourselves that I should share my technology with you. And I said, that's, you know, glad you had the sentiment, but I, I you know, somebody else owns it. So uh, can't give something away that isn't mine to give. They harassed me. I actually seen that. that. Really? I seen that uh, like title on that episode there. That uh, they were talking about the ultra fast dry sift method. And it, you know, it struck a chord with me. I meant to check that out. And then later that night, uh, some people from the chat told me that they had, you know, 
tried to coerce you to come on and actually i had heard that actually blocked you from like responding at one point i thought that that, that being cool but i was wondering if they're what they were talking about yeah. was similar to what you were talking about no i mean they were talking about a completely different thing and they wanted me to talk about what they wanted me to talk about and they blocked me from responding three times. Well, that was two times more than I should have stood for it. So I left. She asked me to come back and talk about it. And I said, no, thanks. I'm not going to be doing that anytime soon. So, say la guerre. I don't Well, I appreciate you coming I mean, out here I and speaking with us. You, if, oh, hey, anytime, I just can't go really late. I just like it. The energy just. Uh, yeah, if I sold you a car and then I sold somebody else the keys to it, too, and told them where you parked it, <laughs> it would be too happy about that, right? So. But, you know, people are greedy and um, they don't care. They, they just want something and that's all they know. They want it. They're not prepared to do the kind of critical thinking necessary in order to come up with those tasty bits of information. And so, you know, I always oh, had to figure out what I always say. My dad, was, you know, he's this. But I, I tell people about, about uh, you know, things you've taught us. I'm like, obviously, you haven't listened to the Indra episodes here. He's, you know, he's definitely gave us some very, very good hits, you know, never all at once. But it throughout the, this will be your fourth episode here. You know, if, you know throughout the three that you've been here, you have uh, kind of sprinkled out some damn good tips. On, on the process never all at once but you've laid out some good hints if you're listening <laughs> i tell you to go back and listen if you really want to know you know that's my my advice on that yeah people don't want hints they wanted a, a mimeograph sheet listed out step by step everything to do uh, so that they can become rich without bothering to apply themselves very much and to put your brain to work for it. Uh, I can do that. I, I like I told you, you know, I gave out BHO. So far, I got one small jar of crystals back from one guy uh, in Arcata. Period. And recently, I heard from him, and he said he's got another jar for me. So, same person will be doing it. For the second time, but hey, it, you know, a lot of those people that are making extractions wouldn't be doing that if I hadn't put the word out when I did. So the the reason they've got a job, the reason one guy I said to him, "You're welcome," and he says, "For what?" And I said, "For you learning how to do this." And he says, "How did I do that?" And he says, "A friend taught me." And I said, "Where'd your friend learn from?" 
then he got in touch with his buddy and he goes, hey, I guess my friend learned it off of your thing. And I said, yeah, you're welcome. But anyway. I've had that conversation before you know. with a guy in Clio, Michigan, to be honest with you. Uh, I guy was handing out some some flyers there on their extracting equipment there. They had claimed to uh, have the biggest machine there. I think I uh, right around that time I did contact you to double check the size of yours. They said they had the biggest. And me and him went back and forth and I'm like, no, I don't think so. You need to, to look into John Indra there, the creator of BHO. He had the, he's got the largest machine in the United States and He's like, I know who he is, and he, you know, he was wrong on the size, but we went back and forth a little bit in the DMs. I'm like, you're completely wrong here, and I, but in the end, there he was like, okay, you're right, you know, <laughs> you know, I should have looked, but yeah, yeah. there's, there's a lot of people that does, doesn't know the truth, I guess. Well, you can go on my channel. And there you can find pictures of the factory, of the equipment, uh, of the patent. Uh, you can go on my, the pure extract, the pure extractor.com and see the uh, factory where we make the equipment. So people who say, I mean, I get people tell me, oh, you don't make anything. And I'm like, yeah, you've done a lot of web search, haven't you? To back up your moronic opinion, but anyway, I, so I, one other. I used to get angry and argue with people. Getting getting angry is getting them what they want. That's what I have found out there about getting angry in response to people. Right. That's just what they want out of you. That's their way of getting attention. Solo meal. Donald Trump special. I wanted I wanted to ask you because I seen in chat there a few people talking about your, your jewelry and your art. If they're interested in that, uh, I've heard that you may trade in california cash outside outside of california uh, where can they pick that up if they're interested in some of the stuff that they see well first off they should go on uh send me an email you can find it on my thing but it's john h davis at gmail.com And we'll discuss it from there. Putting a lot, of, a lot of really cool artwork, by the way. We didn't touch on that, but you know, that is you're, you're turning out a lot of all the prints, a lot of really cool stuff. Prints are available online. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like it too. If I like it. I figure everybody else will too. So it's time for some new psychedelic stuff. Got my friend that's growing a buttload of philosopher's stones over at his place. 
and and they're fabulous little things. Chew up a quarter ounce of those, and that little picture behind me becomes real. Definitely more plentiful these days. That's anyway. for sure. Here in Ann Arbor, they just uh, legalized them for research and treatment here in Ann Arbor. So that's one stepping stone I'm looking forward to. Legalization of the mushroom thing. Ann Arbor was doing pot way back when. Wasn't Ann Arbor doing pot way back when? Yes, sir. They were the Hash pass, original hash pass over 50 years. Good times. I was sad to miss it this year. I try to go whenever uh -oh. possible. Headphones. Did we Headphones are going to die, so I'm going to shut it down and wish all you people uh, not your bed. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Uh, like I said, anytime you want to come back, please let me know. Well, to all my fellow embodiments of love out there, take care. Love everybody. Serve everybody. And everybody will love you and everybody will serve you back. It seems like a simple formula, but it's so perfect. Enjoy. Good night. Night. Thank you very much. Tons of honor to hang out with Mr. Indra. Tons and tons and tons of honor to speak with that man. I love these episodes. Even that is uh, like you've heard before. This is not Indra's first time being on the show. If you look back, there are quite a few of just amazing episodes we've gotten to spend with uh, Indra. So if you got to catch this one and you're still hungry for some more there are several episodes you can go back and uh, check out that are just as good if not better than tonight but tonight was pretty amazing i mean i'm never disappointed with a night with indra so thank you very much indra for hanging out with us tonight sharing us your amazing journey and I know there's so, so much more to uh, to hear of your journey. And I can't wait to uh, get into that deeper. So that is the end of this episode. Thank you very much to everybody that hung out and uh, enjoyed this episode. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Those of you that want to hang out, I probably will fire up the rabbit hole here in a few minutes and at least do the shout outs and if there's people that want to come up and hang uh, we'd probably do that too but uh that does end up the, this portion of tonight's episode so thank you very much for hanging out look for the rabbit hole uh yeah you guys know the deal if you guys don't hang out in the rabbit hole tonight please join me well I don't know what's going on tonight. I can just guarantee that I'll be here at some point before midnight. And we'll hang out and see where tonight's usual crazy rabbit hole goes. 
What's up, Tom? Glad to see you still here, brother. Uh, hopefully I'll see you tonight as well. Or in a minute in the rabbit hole. We'll see. Either way, I'll see you guys in a minute. Random acts of kindness, please do something nice for somebody if you guys don't tune in. Step by step, it'll change the world. Thank you, guys. 